I'm afraid I don't have a proper Zen Dhamma talk in my quiver today. But something's on my mind, and uh, I'm going to talk about it. Well, who knows what a proper Zen Dhamma talk is anyway? Well, some of us just came back from our annual wild Dharma trip to the Dirty Devil Canyon in Utah. Maybe that's why Brian didn't know what to chant, you know. We were we've abandoned our civilized ritual Zen culture and did something different. Now we're coming back and we're confused. re-entering civilizational life. Now, I'm always really um, curious about why I'm doing what I'm doing. There's a kind of abyss there. I think we don't really know. We don't have reasons for what we're doing. The reasons come later. We're just always doing something. So I don't know why I felt compelled to uh, start wild dharma practice. I mean, somebody suggested it to me, it was already kind of on my mind, and it happened, now it's kind of part of a, our annual program. And I continue to ask myself what it is that we're doing and why we're doing it. And I mean, I, I did notice on this trip that being away from the features of civilization that now seem so prominent, internet, cell phones, um, did something for me. But also, not just internet and cell phones, but our daily, um, our daily activities are so intertwined with these technologies now that when we step out of our daily activities, we some, some often feel, I think, that we're stepping out of that, those media. Before the internet was there, what were people stepping out of? Also, there are daily activities um, that is, are in contrast to just walking in wild nature with no particular purpose other than walking and getting to the next water source. And I noticed that uh, particularly my sense of time shifted. Is after two days, I felt, I, when I was thinking about it, I, I knew, oh, it's just two days. But my feeling was, I'd be, I was kind of disconnected from these daily activities and the media in which they occur in a kind of timeless fashion. It's just kind of, it's just, dropped away. Now, what, what's intriguing about that for me is that 
maybe things aren't just given. Maybe they are constructed. And if we um, do things differently, then we feel profoundly different. Or maybe there are possibilities that are uncharted because they escape the usual structures of our existence. Just this, that's just a structure of thinking that I've noticed, uh, that I've noticed during the trip. I was thinking about time. Time was there in its normal linear fashion. I could remember, yeah, we only slept two times outside under the stars. So it must be just two nights, but the stretch of time that I was feeling seemed much longer, or actually, not even longer, kind of timeless. Strange how the structure of thinking holds in place the structure of time. And it was nourishing, and there was a sense of increased freedom. (coughs) Now, I... I'm wrestling with something that I made a decision about. I was invited to participate in a panel discussion at the 17th anniversary of our neighboring organization called Shumei International. And they invited me to participate in a panel discussion on the topic of their anniversary, which is living in harmony with nature. And um, I've had other invitations to participate in these annual celebrations. One time I was invited to talk about Zen meditation. And I said yes, just because I want to support this communal event. I said yes, but I didn't ask enough questions, so I ended up giving Zen meditations to jet-lagged Japanese people who were sitting in this room falling asleep while I was talking as a Westerner about Zen meditation. I don't know, I couldn't have been more awkward. But anyway, I made it through. <clears throat> this time... I did a similar thing. I just wanted to be supportive. And Matthew, my friend, who's the operations manager over there, asked me very nicely if I would participate in the panel. And I said, sure. Sure, I will participate. But I didn't really ask about the topic. So I knew it was something about ecology and spirituality. And so then I thought, like, oh, yeah, okay, I can be part of that conversation. But I didn't know that the title of the panel discussion would be Living in Harmony with Nature. Now that I've gotten the invitation and I can read the title, I feel I feel really uneasy. Now it's not it's not some superficial uneasiness. Otherwise I wouldn't talk to you about it here, even though it's just on my mind, that's why I'm talking about it. But I hope it can be somewhat beneficial. It's a profound uneasiness. I, I mean, I hear this title 
and nothing in it makes sense to me. And I'm I'm uh, I'm confronted with a, a deep sense of not knowing what 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 my or our place in the world actually is. I I, I can't locate it. I, I'm not sure I can appear there and talk in a sincere, authentic way about what living in harmony with nature means for me or in general. Okay, so um, this uneasiness, I can actually look at each word in this in this uh, in this title: living with, living in harmony with nature, and. Um, try to locate my uneasiness in each of the words, which I'm going to try to do. Well, let's start with harmony. The etymology of the word means something like, the Greek word means um, to fit together, to join. And then it became a technical term in uh, describing music. And so I think, you know, the, the musical term composition actually captures the root of the word already. You fit together, compose. Compose means to put together. And I, I read that it, 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 the original use in Greek was to, to fit together contrasting qualities like low and high pitch. But in the in the classical practice period of Western music between 1650 or 1900 or so harmony became it, harmony became more of an emphatic concept emphasizing harmoniousness. How pitches can be fit together harmoniously. Therefore, you also had to invent then the antonym to the word harmoniousness, which is disharmonious or disharmony. So this isn't just a neutral understanding of fitting together or being joined. It's actually an emphatic understanding of um, consonance, dissonance and consonance. Now, Western music is always like, a, because it evolves over time, it is a play with dissonance and consonance. Tension and relaxation is how we experience it, I think, musically. A, a, a discord, a disharm, a, a dissonant chord is um, has some tension, and the rules of harmony or harmoniousness in Western music demand that when there is tension in a chord, 
it needs to be resolved in a consonant chord. So harmoniousness is a kind of musical arrangement that pleases, sound that pleases. And when there is sound that displeases, dissonance, it needs to be resolved into consonants. Now, I, the question I have when I, the, and, and the uneasiness with this title of living in harmony with nature is whether we live in a way that's harmonious in relationship to nature. There's this myth. There's this myth that before the Industrial Revolution, or maybe before the Agricultural Revolution, and to give you a time frame if you're not familiar with those terms, the Agricultural Revolution happened 12,000 years ago, or 10,000 years ago. Something like that. 12 or 10,000, I don't know. Yeah, 10,000 B.C. May I take a seat? In the Industrial Revolution, I think we can uh, locate, temporarily, temporarily locate the late 18th century with the invention of the steam engine. James Watt's invention of the steam engine, 1784, I believe. There's this myth that before the Industrial Revolution and before the Agricultural Revolution, human beings lived in harmony with nature. But when you, when you look... I think it's now indisputable from the fossil records that human beings were the most deadly species that evolution has ever produced. Way before we invented the wheel and writing and iron tools. If you want to read about this, you can read about it in this best-selling book by Yuval Harari called Sapiens. Well, he spells out that 70,000 years ago something occurred that we can call the cognitive revolution where, where Homo sapiens started to speak a different kind of language that you can find in the animal kingdom. Because animals communicate, but human beings started to communicate in different ways with much more subtlety. But as Yuval Harari emphasizes, primarily human beings invented fictive language, meaning we were, we started to communicate about things that don't exist. Gods, myths, legends, 
religions. And the power of these myths, these stories, stuff that doesn't exist, you know, stuff that doesn't exist means stuff you can't touch, you can't smell, can't see. It allowed Homo sapiens to cooperate in unprecedented large numbers. And the ability to cooperate in large numbers unleashed this destructive force on nature. I'm going to talk about nature too. But let's just keep the term in place as if it means something. When uh, human beings settled, or maybe more accurately, invaded Australia in 45,000 years ago, human beings in a very, very short time killed all the Australian megafauna. There's 24 large mammal species, or I don't know, mammals are just large, you know, megafauna above like 100 pounds animals. They were all killed. Hunted hunted, and uh, outcompeted by human beings. And the same thing happened when Homo sapiens, again, let me say it that way, because I want to paint this picture in a kind of dramatic, drastic way, invaded the Americas 16,000 years ago. 84 of the 107 genera, this is like the taxonomic concept above species and under family, 84 of the 107 large genera, animal genera in the Americas, went ex- were dr- driven to extinction by foraging cultures by hunters and gatherers, not by farmers, not by industrialists. If you look at this history of extinction, there's three waves of human human caused extinction in this hunter-gatherer culture, first wave after the cognitive revolution, then by farmers, after the agricult or through the agricultural revolution, and then really spiking in our time and age after the industrial revolution. But we, I think, you know, you can correct me if I'm wrong. Later, when we have a discussion, or you know, just in your mind, you can have a different opinion. It seems like we hold on to this myth of a natural person that existed some time in the past, that lived in harmony with nature. Well, I think that has to be, you know, given what I've just said, that would have to be dated back 70,000 years ago before the Cognitive Revolution. So what is this what is this uh, what is this discussion this panel discussion going to be about when we talk about living in harmony with nature we're going to give up 
everything that the Industrial Revolution brought about and give up farming and give up hunting? What are we, we going to be? Apes? Chimpanzees? Type apes. Still, you know, quite intelligent creatures cooperating in groups of 20 to 30 individuals. But we're not going to do all this stuff that's bad for nature anymore. But this is just nonsense. This is not going to happen. And it's not a viable path. It's not doable. You can't do it. Nobody can do it. The only way to be in harmony, harmoniousness with nature, if you are concerned about the extinct, extinction and the destruction and the pollution and the overpopulation that you participate in every day, would be to commit suicide. That would have the least impact. A little carbon pollution from decomposing. <clears throat> this is a difficult situation. I mean, when I talk about uneasy, you know, it's nice to have a talk about living in harmony with nature, but when you look into just the concept of harmony, what is that going to be? What is it supposed to mean? And I'm really concerned about sitting on this panel and saying these things. Nobody wants to hear that. I think that's not the intention of a discussion for someone to show up and say, it's just the whole topic is nonsense. <clears throat> but this is, this is just, you know, I'm just saying to you, it's, unfortunately, it's recorded. <laughs> I very much resonate with the intention of the discussion, of the title, because I'm profoundly disturbed by the destruction that human beings have brought about. I'm really disturbed by it. Today, I noticed, you know, you can't get away from the fact of, um, you know, those... The four megatrends, the destructive megatrends that are converging in the world today, the way I see it, is overpopulation, pollution, climate change, and species extinction. And you can't, if you acknowledge that they're happening, and you don't live in denial, you can't basically, you can't get away from it. Like today, I noticed that there was no brush to clean our stove. Right? And just, just being, just being involved with this micro situation of my ordinary existence is like the stove, the brush, you need to clean it. I'm, I'm involved with these four megatrends. I can naively just cook a meal and clean up. But I can also notice, okay, we just turn on the gas and there's the carbon pollution, the global warming. Uh, then we clean up and we pour some detergent into the water and we use a plastic brush, which accumulates in the oceans right now. The plastic, and you know, all this plastic. Plastic takes thousands of years to decompose. 
it will outlast human beings probably. I, I told some of you that my latest interest is hyperobjects. A hyperobject is a is defined as a massively distributed an object massively distributed in space and time relative to humans. Evolution is a hyperobject. You know, life on Earth started 3.8 billion years ago. Like, what? What do you? This is unimaginable. You can write out the numbers, but what does it mean? Plus, evolution is also a hyperobject because we have no explanation for it, basically. We can make some theories. But we also don't know why evolution produced a, such a destructive species like ours. Why did the cognitive revolution occur? Why are human beings so destructive? We each participate in the destruction and have a sense of responsibility for it if we are sensitive human beings. But are we really responsible? Can you blame it on evolution? It's hard to blame it on evolution if you don't understand evolution. It's just, it's a hyper-object. It withdraws from understanding. But global warming is a hyper-object too, because it's withdrawn from not just understanding, but even just perceptual immediacy, as I call it. We experience the weather, but we don't experience the climate. The carbon that's in the atmosphere now is going to be there for thousands of years, having effects on the planet. Talking about massively distributed in time. Nuclear materials are hyperobjects. You know, the half-life of plutonium, which now covers the crust of the Earth, just gets distributed everywhere in water being very harmful to all life. The half-life of plutonium is 24,000 years. How do you deal with that in the present? So I have a lot of understanding for denialists, because if you deny, basically don't look at pollution, global warming, overpopulation, species extinction, you can pretend to have a normal life. Like, let's just, you know, let's go on, you know, what's on, what's on TV tonight? Turn it on. <clears throat> anyway, the, in <laughs> sorry, I came from saying, I appreciate the intent of the discussion because it is somehow a heartfelt need to respond to what's going on in the world. And there's a desire to live harmoniously. Just, is it in accord with reality? Or is it just a fantasy? Now the problem or the uneasiness I have with the word nature, or the concept behind the word nature, this is manifold, but let's just look at a couple of things. Um, 
The problem I have mostly is that human beings have distanced themselves from nature. You know, nature is something that's over there. It's something you look at through your window. We live in civilization and nature is out there. That's the reason th this distance has to come into view is if we didn't, if we hadn't separated ourselves conceptually from nature in the first place, it would make, it would make no sense. It would make no sense to talk about that we now have to harmonize with it. If you recognize that, if we recognize that we are nature, then we wouldn't have to relate to it as a stranger. So because nature is out and over there, you could say, okay, let me, let me see if I want to be in harmony with it or not. But we are nature. How could we have, how, how did we forget that? It's strange. It's a strange situation. Now, on this wild Dharma trip that we just uh, came back from, or some of us, I talked about this a little bit, and I appreciate Gary Snyder, the poet, Zen poet, maybe we can say, poet's distinctions, definitions, where he says, Nature is the entirety of the physical universe. So an anthill is nature, and New York City is nature. The zendo is nature, and the mountains are nature. Animals and plants are nature, and human beings are nature. The entirety of the physical universe is nature. That makes sense to me. So then we are nature. But what is the emphatic sense of nature? Because there's an emphatic sense of like nature that's like, it's the stuff that's green. Or, you know, it's what grows. <laughs> it's what's not civilized. It's what happens when you go outside. Well, well, Gary Snyder refers to that aspect as the wild. And the wild, he defines, is the process of nature. The wild is, the, as he says, the ordering of impermanence. The ordering of impermanence. I think the way, and this is where there is... At least some overlap with Buddhism. I think the ordering of impermanence is interdependence. The interdependent, interemergent relationality of different forms of life is all subject to impermanence, all subject to coming and going, all subject to life and death. Their interdependence is an ordering. 
There's balance and imbalance. There's discord. There's dissonance, we could say, to bring up this musical metaphor. There's dissonance and consonance. There's symbiosis and there is rivalry, competition. But there's an implicit sense that each each life form can have a place in this process that he calls the wild, this ordering of impermanence. Nothing is useless. Nothing isn't just material. Everything is also an end in itself, not just a means for something. And then he says, wilderness, which is, I think, what we can say, we just traveled in the wilderness, in the Dirty Devil Canyon system. Wilderness is a place where wildness is fully expressed, he says. And there's something refreshing and nourishing to participate in wildness in this place called wilderness, to participate in wildness, at least some, to sense the ordering of impermanence through interdependence. That there is some way that we have a that we have a sense of having a place in that interdependence. I don't know if it's harmonious. I don't think that harmoniousness as this process, this musical process of resolving dissonance into consonance, whether that is part of the wild. But I think we have this, I think some human beings, or many human beings, have this kind of fantasy that somehow the wild, this sort of background intactness of ordering, of ordered impermanence, needs to resolve itself into consonants. A happy ending. As if nature owes us something. As if somehow it's all going to come around and have a happy end for human beings. Because God intended it so, Ogaya, this living planet that mysteriously brought forth all this life, including human beings, the crown of evolution, crown jewel of evolution that destroys everything. Like, is Gaia coming to rescue us? Or as some Gaia theorists say, is Gaia in the process of going through a hot fever and getting rid of the invaders of the of the germs that are human beings, you know. Gaia is just shaking us off. Because we stopped harmonizing and cooperating. Some people compare human beings on planet Earth to cancer cells, you know. So the immune system is working. Global warming as a fever. 
People are talking like this. We can't, it seems like after the cognitive revolution 70,000 years ago, human beings can't get away from storytelling. It must be about God, must be about Gaia. Well, one thing is for sure, we live and we die. And I think one of the things that are that human beings have marginalized is death. I mean, mostly our own death. We're okay with other species dying if it's, if it's serving our own life. But we hold on tightly, are attached to staying alive. And when I listen to Gary Snyder's definition of the wild as an ordering of impermanence, what I hear is not just life, but I also hear death. And that's the problem that I have with the word living in harmony with nature. Because that living excludes death. It seems to me that... uh, in attending and responding to these four destructive megatrends, we urgently need to learn to die. And by that I mean not committing suicide, but to recognize the fragility and um, preciousness of life. The fact of death. Right now, you know, so I think until until now, where hyper-objects like global warming are starting to rule and giving us a very different perspective of what's actually happening in, with, in the world and with the planet. Until, until that dawning of these... Uh, uncontrollable objects like pollution and global warming they're uncontrollable I mean when you read about sorry when you read about how plastics decompose in the oceans and microplastics start to be distributed everywhere in living organisms you understand that that can't be cleaned up It's everywhere. And it, it, it has effects on the endocrine systems of living beings. And every water bottle you buy contributes. Because there is no place that we can call away. We, we live with the sense that there isn't a way if we bury it in a dump or if we put the nuclear materials underground or if we uh, have stuff that blows out of chimneys, if we make them high enough, the stuff will be away. But there's no way in nature. The dump is our own bodies. If we recognize that we are nature, we recognize that all this nuclear stuff will affect these cells, that all this plastic, as it is diluted 
and distributed all over the world is absorbed by this body. There's no away. There's no place you can throw things away into. But this is how we have existed for thousands and thousands of years. And we're not the only animals that act that way. Incorporating death into the ordering of impermanence means, you know, everything changes and everything is... There's a finitude to things. I think it will be important to respond to the situation we're in. Recognizing that actually nature, wild nature, doesn't owe us anything in terms of harmony. Wild nature is the process of living and dying, and we can do our best to survive. We may have to change profoundly in order to survive as a species, even as individuals. That doesn't mean, you know, we can't enjoy our lives in the meantime. I'll say one last thing. Sorry to go on so long. Still okay, I think. I'm interested in the question what to do. And as I said in the beginning of the talk, it's mysterious what we do. Like, why are we doing it? Like, why are we sitting here practicing Buddhism? I don't know. Why do you dress the way you do? Why do I dress the way I do? Uh, there's, a, uh, there's an American philosopher named Alfonso Linges, whose uh, writings are very intriguing, to say the least. Unusually observant person. And he gives descriptions of, you know, how we are sensorially in the world and uh, how the world is affecting us in an elemental way. And he speaks about the things, um, the things have power over us and that they exert what he calls imperatives. We, we, we tend to live with this idea, oh, we're human beings, we're controlling everything. And he, he points out that things are, are presenting 
imperatives to us and we feel compelled to obey them. And I think we can be more attuned to those imperatives or less attuned to those imperatives. And I, my sense is, and I want to think and develop this further for the sake of our practice, is that, that zazen and Zen practice actually implicitly, even if it's not spelled out so clearly, is a practice of attuning to those imperatives. Even our yogi practice is a little bit like that. The process of Oryoki demands of us to be present and to handle the objects that we've created for it, to handle them in a proper way. Lots of this is culture and expectation, but there's, but Zen is trying to point to the imperative of objects, of things. That, you know, if you have a bowl that has no handles, how do you hold the bowl? You have to hold it a specific way. You don't hold it. If you hold it with your thumb like this, it just doesn't feel quite right. When you hold it like this, it's different. Now, this is something to experiment with. I'm not saying that there's something definitive about it. But this idea in Zen practice that we relate to each other and relate to things in a natural way, which is kind of like a Taoist idea, but I have just critiqued the word natural, so I'm in a mess right now. Um, this idea of, of relating to persons and objects with, a, with a, a sense of nothing extra has something to do with Obeying the imperative of things. How to walk on the ground. To let the ground tell you how to distribute your weight. To let the emotion that you observe in another human being tell you what to do. Well, Lingus has an interesting example in his, in his book, which is called The Imperative. Um, he has an interesting example. He, he says, when you are in a majestic sequoia forest on the California coast, and you see a cigarette butt that wasn't stumped out completely, extinguished, and you see it, this situation is communicating an imperative to extinguish the cigarette butt. You just do it. You have no reasons for doing it. When we drove home from, from Utah, we found a tree had fallen onto the road. And Terry just, you know, got swerved. It's night, right? He's hardly to see the tree. Swerved and avoided the tree. And then he instructed me to call 911 and call the, call the hazard in. And he said, yeah, most people wouldn't do that. You know, just like, oh, they're just thinking about themselves. They'll just go on. Then I was trying to do that. And then I had no single, but finally I called it in. Because I agreed with him. It's like, the tree 
in the hazard for other human beings communicates an imperative that something needs to be done about it. If the tree wasn't so heavy, you know, we should have stopped and, you know, do something about it ourselves. Maybe we should have. Lock the road. We didn't do that. Now, this is something I want to explore further. How we respond to these imperatives and where do they exist for us? How does the world tell us today what to do? What do you have to do with your life? How are you going to spend your time? What's important? There's always the urgency. Like Zen actually hints at this and says, when you're tired, you sleep. When you're hungry, you eat. Like that's Zen ethics. It right? <laughs> tells you what to do. But it's not that simple, right? We're not just responding to biological needs, like hunger and tiredness. Responding to a complexity of the world. What do we, what is the, what are the imperatives there? What do we have to do? Another thought that Lingus puts forth, which I find very intriguing, or needs to be unfolded at another time, is that when we follow through on what we have to do, when we obey the imperatives of things and the imperatives of the world, through following through on what we have to do, we find out what we want to do. Right now, I think we live in a culture where we think, I have to find out what I want to do. And it's completely random. And often, when you start doing what you want to do, you lose interest when you start doing it. When you're compelled to do something that has value and importance in the world, like saving a sequoia forest, you may find out by responding what the world tells you what you have to do, that you want to do what you have to do. Thank you for your attention and patience.